The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Bootleg Football Podcast. We got a huge show for you this week. We are going over every single new coaching staff in the NFL, uh, all seven of the major head coaching changes and their coordinator picks. Uh, We have a huge trade in the NFL to talk about. We'll get to that at the top of the show. Uh, Just a a jam-packed show for you this week. Before we get into everything, though, my co-host, my my friend EJ, buddy, how you doing? And what are you drinking tonight? Uh, I'm doing all right, which kind of leads into what I'm drinking tonight. I uh, I can't top your dental exploits of the week, but I do have a tooth <laughs> that's pissing me off, and so I'm on antibiotics to try and calm that down. And of course, one of the things about antibiotics is no drinking booze. So I just have orange seltzer tonight. Um, what do you have? Because you you had way more done than I than I had done. Yeah, I uh, I also am booze free for the night because I've been popping ibuprofens all day because uh believe it or not i just had a wisdom tooth removed a couple days ago i know a lot of people are like wisdom teeth you're you're almost 30 and you're getting your wisdom teeth out now yes why is that because i only grew wisdom teeth on my top uh top row of teeth i never actually grew bottom wisdom teeth so i never really needed them removed until now when i went in for a cleaning and the dentist says hey these are growing sideways you should probably get those taken care of and i said shit okay schedule it. so <laughs> so i waited till after the season cuz uh i i have it's a multi appointment thing and each appointment takes like three and a half hours and i get all nice and drugged up with novocaine i had like seven or eight shots of novocaine cuz apparently that doesn't work on me too well so i needed a ton of it um so yeah i've been uh, i've been taking ibuprofen to um deal with some nagging jaw pain all week so no booze for me tonight either uh it's i think it's our first dry bootleg show now that i think Uh, about it between the two (laughs) of us yeah i think we're usually one of us is holding up the other end of the wagon but uh no we'll uh we'll get through it regardless and you know tons of good stuff as you said to talk about we we didn't have the trade but uh as is typical with writing up bootleg agendas we just have to write one and then something fun happens in the nfl and it certainly happened today yeah, so Carson Wentz is the newest presumably starting quarterback for the Indianapolis Colts. 
Uh, this has been a wild saga that I know you as a Bears fan, you've been paying very close attention to for the last, I don't know, three, four weeks now. All told, uh, the Eagles are getting a 2021 third rounder and a conditional 2022 second that can become a 2022 first round pick if Wentz plays at least 75% of the snaps next year, uh, or if he plays 70% of the snaps and they go to the playoffs, which isn't out of the realm of possibility. Um, you know, it's one of the stronger rosters in the AFC. So I think either way, that's a pretty good bet for Philly to get a first round pick out of him. Uh, ironically enough, uh, the Eagles gave up five picks in the first place to get Wentz back in the 2016 draft, including a couple first rounders. They paid him $128 million less than two years ago. And now they are offloading him with a record dead cap hit of $33.8 million. Never happened before in NFL history. Uh, weirdly enough, the previous record for dead cap hits, by the way, was the Rams with Jared Goff last week <laughs> at, uh, what was it, 20-something million? So that uh, 2016 quarterback class is uh, representing well, or I guess you can call it representing terribly in terms of sunk cost fallacies. But So yeah, the Eagles put five picks in to get Wentz, paid him a bunch of money, and uh, less than two years later, trading him away. What they do from here on out is anyone's guess, whether they stick with Jalen Hurts, whether they try to go after either Fields or Zach Wilson maybe from BYU. Uh, I don't know if, if they're going to be able to because I think a lot of other teams uh, are, are going to be able to snipe those quarterbacks ahead of them. But Either way, I'm fascinated to see what the 2021 Eagles do heading into uh, probably a soft rebuilding year. And then 2022, I think, is their target because they're presumably going to have two first-round picks, a bunch of cap space opened up after the uh, Carson Wentz deal comes off their books after next year. So I think 2022 is the target here. And I think one of the bigger topics of this offseason is, is how Philly sets themselves up for a big rebound two seasons from now. Yeah, there's the Bears are not in an uh, unfamiliar or unsimilar position or dissimilar position to the Eagles in terms of they're probably not going to do anything this year save some kind of miracle at quarterback. So it's a similar situation I'm not unfamiliar with. Uh, one of the things about the Carson Wentz trade that's just super odd uh field yates put it on twitter today it says and with the trade of carson wentz there will now not be a single quarterback drafted in the first round from 2009 to 2016 that is still with his original team zero out of 22 total that's 22 quarterbacks drafted in the first round between 09 and 16 and none of them zero are still with their first team so when we say it's a crapshoot, folks, <laughs> we mean it. The draft is a crapshoot. That's an amazing stat. And I put out a little poll on Twitter to follow that up and said, so the Eagles are likely to dump some resources. Speaking of the Eagles and what their 2021 really looks like, I think they're likely to dump some resources into acquiring a starting QB, either through a trade, Watson, if they can pull it off, but I don't know that that's true, or through the draft. And that means they're probably going to have to move up from six, like it or not, because I think most folks will know by then whether or not they're going to do it. And anybody that wants one of the top three is going to move up. 
Carolina, Denver, San Francisco could all jump up and pip Philly. So if they do that, they're probably going to have to spend some of those draft picks and move up to get one of the top three if they want them. And I said, if they do that, if they do either thing, a trade or move up in the draft and get, you know, essentially a first round quarterback, do they keep Jalen Hurts? And the results were pretty interesting. I put up the sort of the four heat meter responses of absolutely, I think so. I don't think so, or no way. And, you know, 22% said absolutely. 36% said, I think so. 33% said, I don't think so. And 7.5% said, no way. So 40, just over 40% of people were unsure that they would keep Jalen Hurts. And we were talking about this before the show that it really is about not having two alphas in the quarterback room. That sounds great to fans, but if you talk, to anybody that's actually been in a quarterback room, you don't put two alphas in an NFL quarterback room. It doesn't mm-hmm. work. The team divides up, picks sides. You start to see fractures. It just doesn't work. And and fans sort of poo-poo that notion and say, nah, nah, you get as much talent and you just jam it all in there. Anybody that's been in an NFL quarterback room says, uh-uh. And if the Eagles go out of their way to either through a trade or through the draft to get a top-flight quarterback – I think the possibility that they move Jalen Hurts is real. Now, again, he wasn't a first-rounder. He was picked in the second last year. We both liked him, but that might be too close to comfort for Philadelphia to have him sort of be in the clipboard role comfortably, and they might move him for assets, which I think they could get. So just an interesting thing to keep an eye on again. Are they setting their sights for next year? Are they going all in and doing something like, you know, dumping resources for Watson this year? If they do, I think Jalen Hurts definitely moves and we'll see. But just a fascinating storyline that's sort of a subplot of Carson Wentz shipping out to Indiana. On the Colts side of this, I think everybody's kind of been in universal agreement that if there was a place that Carson Wentz could be Carson Wentz again, it's Indy. Uh, you know, with Frank Reich, who I think got the best out of him when when Reich was in Philly. He's notoriously um, good at drilling in mechanics and and making sure that quarterbacks stay mechanically sound from throw to throw, which was a problem for Wentz uh, in the last couple of years. He had a huge overstriding problem. Uh, his release has always been kind of a windup, but it really elongated even more after Reich left. Just mechanically, he was really, really sloppy, and Reich is known for kind of being a drill sergeant with mechanics, so I think that can help him out. In terms of style of offense, um, I, I, I think a kind of run-heavy, quick-game-oriented uh, attack like what you see with Frank Reich is good for Wentz to kind of keep him in structure and you know, you can take shots every now and then, but maybe uh, <laughs> I think limiting the amount of shots you you try to take can kind of prevent Wentz from going into hero ball mode, which also gotten got him into pretty substantial trouble last year in Philly. So I, I think Reich is a great coach for him. Offensive line, you know, Anthony Costanzo just retired, but the rest of the line I think is still really, really good. If you can kind of go into this stacked offensive line class and come out of it with, you know, maybe a diamond in the rough left tackle on day two, I think you can work with that. Weapons-wise, you and I both love Michael Pittman. Um, Pascal, I think, is a good number two. 
Uh, Mo Alley Cox, I think, is an underrated red zone threat. Doyle, I think, is an underrated tight end as well. The running back room is absolutely phenomenal. Still not sure what's going to happen with T.Y., but if he comes back, um, you know, you probably add like one more receiver, and I, I think they're fine there at that position. The defense is obviously, you know, ready to rock and roll again with Matt Eberflus. So, like, this team is is such a great supporting cast for Wentz that I absolutely believe that he could bounce back. Will he? It's tough to bet on it, <laughs> but if there was one place that it was going to happen, it was going to be the Indianapolis Colts. Yeah, the setting couldn't be better for him. His familiarity with Frank Reich, a good, strong offensive line in front of him, a great running game behind him, and some developing weapons for him on the outside, which they can certainly add to in this draft. The Colts, by no means, did Ballard gut himself with this trade in terms of picks. They've still got some firepower to add people there, and like you said, they could use an offensive lineman, a tackle to replace Costanzo. But I think... It's really between the ears for Carson Wentz. He looked completely wrecked last year, and that is a combination of his body being pretty broken down, the team surrounding him not being great in terms of the Eagles, wide receivers not being able to separate early in the season. The Philadelphia offensive line was racked by injuries. He got sacked a lot. He ended up having to scramble. He ended up starting to leave clean pockets. When the line sort of stabilized a little bit later in the year, he was continuing those habits, and it really became a mental thing. You talked about mechanics. He wasn't in charge of those, and he started to do, in the second half of the year, things that were just really indefensible in most (laughs) areas of quarterbacking. As you started to watch him, I remember having conversations with you and with other folks that watch quarterbacks and going, what the hell? Like, it was funny watching Mark Schofield just tear his hair out every single week saying, like, this isn't even recognizable from 2017. Yeah. We're not talking about, you know, progression or regression. We're talking about the TNT going off and looking at a completely different player who's just wrecked in pretty much every aspect, like his decision making, his eyes, his mechanics, uh, his inability to make smart decisions about I should just throw this away instead just whipping stuff up in the middle of the field it was it was really bad on all levels and usually when a player regresses it's like ah his mechanics are off or uh he's he's a little skittish and he's leaving clean pockets but the rest of it is okay this was kind of every checkbox for you know red for a quarterback Carson Wentz was checking them all and then just filling them in with like red Sharpie. It was, it was really, really rough to watch. So can a guy sort of flush that say, all right, totally new surroundings, totally new coaches, totally new surrounding staff with him and, and just start clean. Can you really get all that out of your system in an off season? And I I agree with you. If there's any place you could do it, Indianapolis is the place But it's a lot, even with all those things in place, even with Reich, who we know liked him or wouldn't have backed this trade because he worked with him in Philadelphia. Even with all that stuff in place, Carson Wentz is going to have to take 
uh, it's not even strides, right? He's going to have to have a sort of a massive rebuild. And a lot of that is going to be mental. He's going to have to trust Frank Reich. He's going to have to trust the offense. He's going to have to quote unquote, trust the process. And if he can buy in and do that and return to any kind of normal form, I'm not talking about the 2017, you know, MVP Carson, right? I'm talking about, you know, or MVP track Carson. Uh, I'm talking about normal neutral quarterbacking where you're not doing something awful almost every play if he can do that you know it's not going to be that far below what rivers was doing with them this year which was better than what i thought he would do but you know took that team to the end of the season in good position that would be i would say that would be almost best case right now if he goes above that it's it's just gold for indianapolis but again i wouldn't bet any folding money on that because there's a lot of work to do here. And I mean, let's let's be frank here, no pun intended. The Colts are too good. <laughs> they're they're way too good of a team to have any sort of shot, not just this year, but in coming years, of getting a highly drafted quarterback. Like it's just not gonna happen. They're they're too they're too well rounded. It's too strong of a roster. Chris Ballard is too damn good at his job to be in position to get a young stud quarterback. So this is all he's got. This is this is the only card he has to play is throwing some picks at a guy who has talent and and doing a reclamation project because if it works guess what like Carson Wentz it doesn't cost them that much money like again the Eagles are taking th- almost 34 million dollar cap hit it's not that much money for the Colts and getting a a first and a third round pick for a guy that was playing at an MVP level 4 years ago again if it works that is the only way they're going to get that level of quarterback play for that few, quote unquote, uh, draft assets with how strong their roster is. So it's, I don't want to say it's a desperation move, but it was kind of their only move because the only other thing they could do is like pay a bunch of money to Jameis Winston or, you know, see if you can revive Cam Newton or you know it's all it's all all these other uncertain equally uncertain i would say options that could potentially be even more expensive so it was kind of the only card they had to play and i respect the guts of ballard to trust his head coach and do it we'll see if it works i don't want to make any predictions either way because i honestly don't know but i i think uh, i think you hit the nail on the head of if it's going to work anywhere it's going to be an indie um, and, and since we are on the topic of the Eagles, and this is a show all about new head coaching staffs, why don't we talk about the new staff for the Eagles that just made this trade? There were seven openings in the NFL this offseason. It was the Eagles, the Jets, the Chargers, the Jaguars, Falcons, Texans, and Lions. Eagles are first up. Uh, they just hired Nick Sirianni, most recently the offensive coordinator of the Colts. So again, this is a... <laughs> Very, it's the bizarro connection yeah. <laughs> between Indy and Philly, but they're just dropping people back and forth, left and right. Two very intertwined teams. Uh, offensive coordinator Shane Steichen, who worked with Sirianni, and I think he also worked with Reich. Uh, I think they were all together on the same Chargers staff, if I remember correctly, but I know for sure that at least Sirianni and Steichen, or is it Steichen? I might have the pronunciation wrong. Uh, both worked together for a long time with the Chargers. Sirianni was quarterbacks coach. Steichen or Steichen, uh, whichever one it is, uh, was a quality control coach. Worked his way up 
Now he's the offensive coordinator. Um, Jonathan Gannon, he was also on that Colt staff with Sirianni. He coached DBs, um, and particularly he comes from like the Mike Zimmer tree, I guess you could say. So he he's very much, uh, you know, press corners. It's it's a lot of they call it like match three rip Liz, which is like a, a Saban thing that Mike Zimmer plays all the damn time. It's probably their most called coverage. And we saw Eberflus kind of transition to that Zimmer style uh, or Zimmer slash Saban style of defense last year, even though he was mostly cover two in a couple years, a couple years ago. Then he kind of played more match cover three rip Liz last year. And I, I would be willing to bet that uh, Gannon had a pretty big influence on that. And also Xavier Rhodes, who played that way under Zimmer, probably had a big influence on that as well, because that's what he does well. So I, I'm curious to see if they stick with that style um, with the Eagles defense of, of mostly single high coverage shells and, and kind of match zone coverages. Um, overall, EJ, what is your first impression of Sirianni, Steichen, and Gannon as the top three dogs on this Eagles coaching staff? It's the staff as I was putting this agenda together, it's the staff I know the least about. I know the most about Sirianni. Steichen, I know a little bit about. Gannon, I was unfamiliar with. I had to do more research on him. So I would say I have a less strong impression of them from their previous stops. Philadelphia is a team that definitely looked a bit lost last year. They needed a fresh start. So I'm, you know, I'm interested to see in the wake of Doug Peterson leaving. And there was a lot of, you know, he said, she said, when Doug Peterson left, Peterson's like, I'm glad to get out of there. And Philadelphia's like, we're, we're glad you left, which is just a weird thing yeah. to, to say to a coach who won the Super Bowl so recently. Uh, but anyways, here we are, new, new staff, clean slate. Um, Sirianni certainly has a nice coaching history in terms of the people he's been with. He's got plenty of influences. Philadelphia obviously believes in him, um, but we're going to see. And like any new coaching staff, it's going to take a while to gel. They're going to have to, quote, find their guys on that roster. They're also going to have to find the veterans that don't want to buy in. They're like, forget this. I want out. That happens whenever there's a transition. And they're also going to have to start gathering players for their system. Now, presumably, they'll have a little while to do that. Uh, one and done coaching opportunities are pretty rare in the NFL. You have to really do something terrible to get fired after one year <laughs> or so, just work for the Cardinals. It, there's that. It, it's rare, I said, not not a <laughs> not a never happens. But, you know, it'll be really interesting to see how quickly he can get that staff and that roster gelling. Uh, whether or not they can get results. A lot of that, of course, is going to depend, as it always does in the modern NFL, as to who the quarterback is. And we don't know that yet. And, you know, if they get a rookie quarterback, they basically buy themselves another year worth of developmental time. Uh, that's almost the rule, right? You go high in for a first-round quarterback, you're getting at least a half a year, even in the compressed NFL, uh, to extend because you got new everything. You got new coach, new staff, a bunch of new players, and a new quarterback. So it'll depend, but it'll be really interesting to see what their product looks like on the field. How close is it? And this is the case with all the coaches we're going to be talking about offensive and defensive, how close are they going to remain to their quote-unquote tree where they came from or their previous experience? Or what new wrinkles are they going to put on that sort of bust them out of that envelope? And the Eagles will be a fascinating watch just based on that. 
I would be willing to bet, short of like Zach Wilson or Justin Fields falling to sixth, which let's be real, it's not going to happen. I would be willing to bet that, that sixth overall pick is either Jamar Chase or Devonta Smith because Steichen in particular, who just came from working with Justin Herbert, which was, I mean, four verts all day, every day. We are throwing the ball down the field. We are taking advantage of isolation matchups with Keenan Allen and, you know, Mike Williams and all those great receiving threats. And then, uh, you know, Sirianni seeing what Pittman, who they invested a pretty high pick in last year, um, seeing what he could do as he kind of took over as the wide receiver one when he came back from uh, compartment syndrome. I think these are two guys that understand the value of investing in the wide receiver position after seeing what those young wide receivers did uh, last year. I would be willing to bet that, again, short of them getting Wilson or Fields at six, which is not going to happen, I would be willing to bet that they invest high in wide receiver to make Jalen Hurts as successful as humanly possible because right now, when you look at that Philly uh, receiving core, even though they just invested a first-round pick in a receiver last year, I think you and I are in agreement that Jalen Rager doesn't really profile as a number one. He profiles as potentially a very good Robin, but not necessarily a Batman. They don't have a single Batman on that entire roster like a Jamar Chase or potentially Devonta Smith could be. It's Deshaun Jackson, who's way up there in years. It's Alshon Jeffrey, who's probably not going to be on the roster. It's Travis Fulgham, who's, I don't even know if he's a Robin. He's probably more like an Alfred. It's John Hightower. It's Quez Watkins, <laughs> J.J. Ortega-Whiteside. Like, they don't have a Greg Ward a slot receiver. Like, they don't have that dude, that true alpha wide receiver. And regardless of who their quarterback is, I don't know if they're going to have success in developing somebody unless they have a true alpha wide receiver, which makes me think that if Jamar Chase is on that board at sixth overall, if he's not wearing green next year, I would be stunned. Yeah, alpha wide receiver is a really interesting position discussion, and we're going to be talking about this all through draft season and, and on into next season. It's being elevated. Used to be... It was nice to have one, but you didn't need it. There were other approaches, uh, but it wasn't like a building block of your team. And now with the modern NFL being as pass-focused as it is, it is very difficult to succeed. And it's funny <laughs> that it's the Eagles and the Ravens, right? Two bird teams that aren't that far apart on the East Coast, both struggling with the same thing. The Ravens had the exact same thing. They didn't have an alpha. They had a lot of receiving talent, but, you know, Mark Andrews was probably their primary receiving threat mm -hmm. on a lot of plays. And we're hearing the exact same talk for them in the offseason. They need a number one. They need to go, you know, get Allen Robinson. They need to go get, you know, Kenny Galladay. They need an alpha. And I think in the modern NFL, you do. You need an alpha wide receiver. You can't you know, get a cast of Smurfs anymore and, and make the run and shoot work. It's just not that kind of league. So it wouldn't surprise me at all if that was the pick in Philadelphia. And I'm, I've got to say that I'm a little more excited about Jalen Rager's prospects because I would both say that he underperformed uh, to what we thought he would um, coming out in the draft. And some of that's landing spot. 
some of that might just be, hey, we might not be right about him, but here comes a head coach from Indianapolis that's had really good luck with receivers with his profile, right? Mm-hmm. A little bit smaller, really quick, can work outside or in the slot. That's a Rager, you know, feature. I'm really interested to see in year two if he's not a little bit more like Curtis Samuel was when Matt Rule came into the Panthers and said, oh, no, we know what to do with your skill set. Hang yeah. out, man. We got we got plays for you. And I feel like that's an opportunity that Jalen Rager's going to get now with this staff, and that excites me. Well, fingers crossed, because Jalen Rager has a ton of speed, has a ton of talent. Don't necessarily think it was maximized well last year, but it's a clean slate, new coaching staff, presumably new quarterback. Um, if there was ever a time for for a a big second year jump for Jalen Rager. I think this is this is it. So I'm I'm excited for him. Uh, why don't we move on to the Jets now? Uh, Robert Sala taking over for the recently departed Adam Gase. Who actually I don't even know what Adam Gase is doing now. Did he ever get hired somewhere? I know there was r- rumors kicking around that he was going to get an OC job somewhere. I don't know if he did. Uh, I have to <laughs> he's the that. last person I'm tracking in the coaching carousel, so I'll tell you. I don't know if it was I'll like tell his, you tomorrow. his agent putting stuff out or not, but I, I don't think he's been hired anywhere. Either way, the most important part is that he's no longer actively ruining Sam Darnold, so thank God for that. Uh, Robert Sala taking over, who I'm a huge fan of, and he is putting together an absolutely phenomenal staff. Uh, Mike LaFleur, who's the passing game coordinator for the 49ers of the famous LaFleur family. His brother is uh, the head coach of the Green Bay Packers, Matt LaFleur. Jeff Ulbrich, he was most recently Atlanta's assistant head coach and linebackers coach. Uh, You know, came up in Seattle, ex-linebacker for the 49ers for a long time. Came up in Seattle as a coaching assistant, went to UCLA, and where he developed, fun fact, Eric Kendricks and Anthony Barr. We had a, had a big hand in their development in college, and they both turned out to be phenomenal linebackers. Then went to Atlanta from there to work under Dan Quinn, who he previously worked under in Seattle, was their linebackers coach, where he developed Deion Jones as a rookie, who then turned into one of the best Mike linebackers in the entire NFL. Uh, Devondre Campbell played really well and probably exceeded my expectations because of how great a linebacker coach he is. Uh, just overall, he's he's one of the better linebacker coaches in the entire league, in my opinion. Um, and he was one of the better linebacker coaches when he was in college as well. Uh, he's just he's really really phenomenal. Um, took over as the DC when Raheem Morris got the interim head coaching duty, and their their defense improved almost overnight. It was truly tremendous. Like it wasn't just Raheem Morris that turned the defense around; it was Jeff Ulbrich that had a big hand in that as well. So that's a great hire by Robert Sala. And the fact that they both kind of speak the same language of that, you know, Pete Carroll coaching tree, like they don't really have to spend a whole lot of time getting on the same page in terms of terminology and checks and everything like that. Like they they can kind of hit the ground running and immediately get their system in place. Uh, overall, I'm just absolutely ecstatic about this coaching staff. Also remember that Robert Sala... And Mike LaFleur go back a long time. They've been great friends. You know, Robert Sala's best friend is Matt LaFleur, Mike's brother. So, again, the chemistry on this staff, they all know each other. They've known each other forever. They all speak the same language. I I am so excited 
to see what they do in New York because I think this is going to be just uh, one hell of a staff. Yeah, I think Robert Sala was became one of the hottest candidates in this cycle. We'll talk about the rest of these guys as we go down through, but he was really the top pick when people started talking to him and you started listening to longtime NFL players like Richard Sherman talking about Robert Sala and saying, look, this is the guy you want leading your franchise. And we talked about that with Nick Sirianni, right? That the head coach, especially in a place like New York, is more than just a football coach. Now, Robert Sala is an excellent football coach, but he's more than that. And I think he is ready and sort of tooled up to succeed in this environment. The rest of the staff and how they interact, their experience, the fact that they speak the same language. The Jets are looking for a really good upturn here. I I, I don't want to say I couldn't be more excited about this staff, but that's almost true. And I think one of the players that we both like that just probably jumped out of his shoes when this got announced, like the whole staff, is Bryce Hall. Mm-hmm. Because Bryce Hall is a big physical corner with skills who can run. He can be manned up. That is absolutely within his skill set. He is, you know, not unlike in some ways, I'm not saying he's the same as Richard Sherman, right? He is a big physical guy that can reroute receivers, can run with them. He's very smart, understands leverage and angles. And now he's got a defensive staff and he's got a pretty good defensive line too, right? If they add a good edge player to go with Quentin Williams, like he's going to be getting some balls that get tossed up there. And I'm excited for a guy like Bryce Hall. He's got to be just jacked to have a head coach that understands defense, a guy like Ulbricht who comes in with a ton of experience and, again, a great track record of developing players. Now we get to see what he gets to do at sort of the next level, the coordinator level, not just the position coach level. And, again, the early returns from what he did with Atlanta's defense was night and day last year. That that transition happened so quickly like people said well their defense will probably get better it got better in like two weeks and it was way better and it was like whoa and again yeah most of the credit went to Raheem Morris but Jeff Ulrich was a big part of that so guys like Bryce Hall Quinn Williams those guys are you know they're excited they just got one of the best head coaching candidates on the circuit uh, to come to their team he's got a defensive basis he brought a, a defensive specialist with him those guys are really excited. And the guys on offense are like, hey, we don't have to deal with Adam Gase and Dow Loggins anymore. So they're automatically excited. There's been a lot of talk about, you know, what are the Jets going to do at second overall? And honestly, I think with a coach like Mike LaFleur, you can make the argument for trying to revive Darnold. You can make the argument for trading Donald and taking Wilson. I, I would probably go with Wilson just because he'll be cheaper for longer than Darnold. And I would say he's even more talented than Darnold. So like that's what I would do. But I could see the argument for both ways. But uh, what's really interesting to me is pick 23, their other first round pick, which doesn't get talked about as much. But I think you can go in a lot of different directions with it. Like if, uh, you know, Rashad Bateman's there, I could absolutely see them pairing up Bateman with Mims and you have two dominant, uh, at least potentially dominant outside receivers, um, you know, with Jamison Crowder kind of working over the middle of the field. I think, you know, with, with how strong this offensive line class is, you know, if you see... 
you know, potentially another tackle if if you want to move George Fant inside. I, I could see that. Um, I could see Jeremiah. God, I always screw up this name, but I've spelled it out so many times. Owusu Koromoa from Notre Dame, who's a, I mean, he's like part safety, part linebacker, all kick ass. It's, it's, I'm going to do a film room episode on him because kind of projecting his position in the NFL is a little bit tricky, but specifically with um, a, a coaching staff that has Jeff Ulbrich on it, who coached a similarly sized linebacker in Deion Jones, who also came out at about 6'1", 220, which is the same size as Owusu Koromoa. I would not be shocked if they take him at 23, they pair him with C.J. Mosley. He's more of the kind of lighter, faster coverage linebacker. Mosley's the ass kicker in between the tackles. You pair them up together, that kind of completes the front seven with the one extra need maybe being edge, but uh, there's a couple guys I'm kind of eyeing on day two for them. Like that, I think, would be a phenomenal pick for them. Just knowing what I know about this defensive staff and how much Robert Sala values linebacker, how much Ulbrich values linebacker, and how much they kind of need another one. There's very few guys, I think, defensively that fit this system better than Owusu Koromoa. And I really, really, really hope that happens. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see which way they go again with that second pick uh, in the first round. And I could see them absolutely adding offensive line depth and saying we're going to build from the inside out. We're going to start in the trenches and go back, front to back. That makes a ton of sense. There is absolutely validity to saying, hey, you know, most likely they're going to grab a quarterback up high. And we just talked about it. You know, do you have an alpha? We both believe in Denzel Mims, and he showed some good flashes. It's tough to really give him a, a fair grade after playing under Gase and, and Dal Loggins. But we like Mims, but is he the is he the Batman or is he the Robin? Is he the alpha or the beta, right? But either way, he's a good player, and he's got a great future under these guys. But I could absolutely see them in a very deep wide receiver class grabbing, you know, the highest rated guy that they like and pairing him with Mims. And then you've got a really nice sort of foursome. And if you're talking about that San Francisco, or even if you look at what Lafleur's done and you think it's going to be somewhat similar to what, you know, Matt has done, you've got a really nice foursome at wide receiver. Whoever you pick up at, at the later half of the first round, Mims on the other side, outside, and then inside, you got some interesting options. You got Jamison Crowder, who's a little bit underrated, and Braxton Berrios, the little speedster out of Miami, who is a you know just kind of a flash. He's like Hunter Renfro; he's a flash possession receiver, but he's got some juice to make things happen again. And if you put him at the three or the four, like that's fine, especially if you've got those towers outside. That would be a fun offense right there. So I could see him going offensive line. I could see him going wide receiver with that second pick. Um, either way, and then probably doing the opposite of what they didn't do in the first round and the second round, if they went wide receiver, picking up a tackle, or if they went tackle, getting a wide receiver. Or, you know, again, you know, JOK is what we're going to call him. Owusu Koromora, JOK. Uh, he'd be a fantastic fit because he is the modern version of a coverage nightmare, right? He's that all-around dimebacker. It doesn't really matter what you call him. He's got speed. He hits. He flashes on tape. He can cover slot receivers straight up. 
you know, you don't need to sub him out for that. So would be a great chess piece for them as well if they decided that, hey, we've, you know, we kind of got the offensive line we need. You know, we're going to grab him and then we're going to grab a wide receiver in the second. Any of those strategies work. And they've got a bunch of picks. They've got a staff on both sides, I think, that can develop players now. Um, at least on paper, they look like that. It's going to be it's going to be cool. And I think Jets fans are legitimately excited. Like Rich Eisen is probably going to bed at night smiling because he's going to have a lot to root for next year. When, when the Jets hired Gates, I don't actually remember any Jets fans being excited about it. <laughs> I, I remember them hating the hire at the time uh, and then just yeah. hating it even more, a little bit more every single day until Gates was fired a couple years later. Right now, I don't know a single Jets fan that doesn't like the Sala hire. They are universally uh, in approval of it, and I think for good reason. And I, I think um, I think the Jets really knocked this one out of the park. I think they did a phenomenal job. Um, why don't we move on to the Chargers here? Another coaching staff that I'm a really big fan of, mainly because I'm a huge fan of Brandon Staley. Uh, you know, who's been kind of a, a big up-and-coming defensive coach the last few years. He's a Vic Fangio disciple, most recently defensive coordinator for the Rams, one of the most dominant defenses in the league, running a very similar system to Vic Fangio, which uh, probably makes sense why he brought in Ronaldo Hill, uh, you know, 10-year NFL player, most recently the DB's coach under Fangio for the Broncos, also coached DB's in Miami for a hot minute. Um, I, I think that they are going to work together very, very well because similar to Sala and Ulbrook, they both kind of came up in the same system. They speak the same language. They don't really have to, um, you know, translate terminology in terms of, you know, oh, what do we call this check? When do we call it in this situation? You know, if you get, you know, trips to the boundary, what's your check? If you get trips to the field, what's your check? Like they all kind of know that stuff already because they both worked under Vic who does things a very specific way and Vic's defense is very different than most other defenses in the league um, and so again just kind of having that familiarity I think is huge Joe Lombardi who's a long 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 time assistant coach for Sean Payton down in New Orleans who took a couple year break to go be the offensive coordinator for the Lions and then went back to the Saints most recently was their quarterbacks coach He's now getting his second shot uh, to be an OC under Staley. Uh, I'm very intrigued to see what happens there because when you look at his stint with the Lions, you know, back then they had Megatron, they had Golden Tate, you know, at the time one of the best, if not the best wide receiver duo in the league. Uh, You had a young Eric Ebron who uh, never really reached his potential, but I don't think he was necessarily bad in Detroit outside of like really awfully timed drops, but I don't think he was awful. Um, their, their running game wasn't great under him, but that might also be because their number one running back was Amir Abdullah. So I don't necessarily give him, you know, think it was a fair shake in that regard. The offensive line was okay, but again, not great. And it just kind of seemed like the offense could put up yards, but they couldn't put up points which is a a stark contrast to, you know, when he's in New Orleans. And obviously a lot of that has to do with Sean Payton and Drew Brees. But, you know, he was a part of some really, really, really great offenses in New Orleans over the years. And it was interesting to see that not translate at all to his time in Detroit. So I'm very curious to see if he's able to kind of recapture that, 
you know, Sean Payton West Coast offense magic with um, with Justin Herbert over in L.A. Again, that's I'm kind of wait and see mode on that, but I'm more confident in their defensive staff uh, with Staley kind of you know heading the ship there. Ronaldo Hill, I, I very much love that duo, and especially with the Chargers personnel on defense. I mean, Derwin James is tailor made for this type of system. He's going to be dominant in it. Uh, the defensive line again. It, it, like they rush four so much in this kind of defense that you need to have a good front four and they do. And that's even before we add even more picks in the draft. Like I, I think this chargers defense is going to be crazy good with Staley and Hill. Yeah. They're set up with it in terms of players and it's how fast they adapt to it because you said, look, Fangio's system is different. Um, you know, as a bears fan, I understand that. They'd love to rush four, and I would take the Chargers front four with almost anybody in the league. Um, you know, maybe just a tick below the Washington football team, but really close, and their depth is amazing there as well. So they're going to be able to keep that rush fresh, which is going to keep everybody else in their lanes, which in the Fangio system is a very particular set. So it's how fast they adapt to doing something different, but they're look, their roster is amazing. Their talent is tremendous, and... They're going to probably spend uh, some picks on offense. Maybe not, but, you know, their tight end could be leaving in free agency. And the symmetry of this just hit me as you were talking about it. Joe Lombardi, the quarterback coach of the Saints, who's been working with Drew Brees forever, goes back to the Chargers to work with a quarterbacking phenom. (laughs) That's time is a flat circle, man. And also one more one more semi echo here, you know Lombardi working under Sean Payton has always been a heavy advocate for the tight end position. That's why when he showed up as OC for the Lions, they invested a first round pick in Eric Ebron, and this is going to hurt Lions fans. So please bear with me. Ahead of Aaron Donald, they had a chance to take Aaron Donald. They took Ebron instead because Lombardi said, "I want a really athletic tight end." He worked with Jimmy Graham in New Orleans, uh, you know, Jared Cook. Like he, that offensive philosophy has always placed such a huge weight on the tight end position. At 13th overall, the Chargers, who might be <laughs> waving goodbye to Hunter Henry, may have an opportunity to draft Kyle Pitts. And I would not be shocked if Lombardi pounds the table once again for a difference making just absolutely ridiculously talented tight end who is I mean let's let's make no mistake here a much better prospect than Eric Ebron was and Eric Ebron athletically was a top tier tight end prospect Kyle Pitts is all of that and more I I kind of don't hate that fit and I also wouldn't be surprised if it happens considering who is on their coaching staff yeah, I don't hate it at all. Kyle Pitts is a guy we're going to be talking about a lot because he is a freak. And I mean a freak in all the best ways. Don't let the tight end moniker fool you. Kyle Pitts is wide receiver one in this draft. I mean, <laughs> just let's just call him what he is. He's six six, has ridiculous body control. And the thing that kills me, this came out this week, when he plays his first NFL game, He's going to be 20. He's a puppy, man. 20. He's 6'6". Six, six. He already moves like better than any power forward in the NBA. 
and can score from pretty much anywhere on the field. If you watch his tape, it's staggering. If he went and worked with Justin Herbert and, you know, Joe Lombardi, who, again, is a huge tight end fan, they've always had a, a pretty strong string of tight ends. They got Adam Troutman last year, who's a guy we really liked and I think has a good future. Um, look, if that fit happens and they have those those receiving weapons on the outside, Austin Eckler as a great dual threat, a completely underrated dual threat out of the backfield, and Herbert gets to throw to those guys, like, yikes. Yeah. <laughs> that offense is going to be staggeringly good but it'll be fantastic it'll be fascinating to see how brandon staley adapts in the head spot he was the bears linebacker coach you know not that many years ago just a few years ago and now he's a head coach in the nfl and again that's a whole different tier or level of responsibility now he's one of those guys that you know got close to sean mcveigh and got a head coaching job this is from the <laughs> defensive side not the offensive side but uh, mcveigh's got that coach making magic so it'll be really interesting to see how brandon staley adapts to that head spot he's got a very talented roster and i know and this is a this is a thing you live in that market. There was some disappointment when he was named the head coach, which is a little rough because everybody thought they were going to get the offensive coordinator from the Buffalo Bills, Brian Dable. And everybody was like, man, Brian Dable with Justin Herbert's going to be just like Josh Allen. We're set. And it, it didn't happen for whatever reason. They picked Staley, who is a very talented coach. And a lot of people were like, oh, and you kind of had to push people back from the edge and go, no, not oh, like, you know, he's. He's a really good coach. You know, you should be excited. Um, but there was a little bit of that sort of sticker shock change at the end. I'll, overall, I think this is one of the staffs that's going to be the most fun to watch. I, I might think the Jets have, I do think probably the Jets have the best staff. We'll talk about that at the end. But this is this is a very close second. There's, the, the, you know, this is not the consolation prize. This is a good staff. A great roster, far better roster than what Saul and his staff are inheriting in New York and should be good very quickly. You know, you mentioned that that Chargers fans were hoping or were hoping for for Brian Dable because he could develop Justin Herbert. And I get that. But here's the thing. Brandon Staley, when he was a player, he was a quarterback. He started two years at quarterback at Dayton. Uh, before becoming a, a grad assistant at Northern Illinois after he graduated. So he played the position and then becoming a defensive coach and learning how to frustrate, or I'd say learning to frustrate quarterbacks based on his experience as a quarterback and knowing what frustrated him, you know, having a, a, a coach with experience on both sides of the ball, I think is the best way to develop a young player. Because he's been in Justin Herbert's shoes. Obviously not as a starter in the NFL, but he played the position. And being a defensive coach, he can literally sit Herbert down and say, look, when they're calling this coverage, they're doing it because of X, Y, and Z. They want your eyes to get you know to drift over here so that they can bring this guy from this angle. Like he can break down defenses so well for Herbert with his experience as a quarterback and knowing how Herbert thinks as a quarterback, I think this is going to be better for his development. And I almost kind of liken it to Bill Belichick. Uh, there was a, a great interview on the Make Defense uh, Make Defense Great Again podcast with Coach Bass, a uh, friend of the show. 
And he interviewed Dean Pease for, I think it was like two hours. And one of the nuggets that Pease, you know, said in that show was when he worked with the Patriots, Bill Belichick spent maybe like 30 to 40 minutes every week total in defensive meetings. The rest of his time was spent with Tom Brady, breaking down defenses and showing like, hey, when they go into this shell, here's why they're doing it. Here's what they're calling. Here's how they're affecting you. And he would break down defensive tape for Tom Brady from a defensive coach perspective to teach Tom Brady how to read defenses. I think Brandon Staley could very easily do the exact same thing with Justin Herbert. And the fact that he played quarterback makes it even easier for him to do that. Like, if anything, I think Staley's going to develop Herbert better than Dable would have. And that's saying a lot because I think Dable would have done a phenomenal job. But Brandon Staley was a great, great hire. Yeah, he was highly desired, uh, had many of the interviews uh, either right before or right after on Salah's heels. They were the two sort of hot candidates that shuffled around over that, you know, hot stove three, four day period before everybody was trying to, you know, get a chair before the music stopped. And they were the sort of top two chairs off the board. And and for good reason, I think, Staley, your point about having extensive experience on both sides as an offensive player uh, understanding offensive systems and then coming in and trying to design systems to stop those is going to give a balance to the development of a guy like Herbert that uh, I'm not going to say he wouldn't have gotten, but I think he might have gotten in a different way from Dable. It's not that Dable doesn't understand defensive coverages. He obviously does because he rips them apart with his offensive strategy. He can play that game. You know, two can play that game. Dable can rip apart defenses just as much as defenses try and rip apart Josh Allen. So uh, it'll be fascinating, but very quality hire, interesting staff, tremendous roster chargers fans should be kind of pumped and that might be foreign territory for them just like jets fans <laughs> uh agreed agreed before we get on to the jaguars because there's a lot to unpack with the jaguars staff i do want to take a moment to thank our sponsor for the week mac weldon mac weldon is a premium men's essentials brand that believes in smart designs and high quality fabrics they offer a one-stop shop for men's basics, whether it's socks, shirts, hoodies, underwear, polos, and active shorts. Whatever you need in a wide variety of customizable fabrics like Air Knit X, Dry Knit, and Warm Knit, Mack Weldon has you covered. They also have a totally free loyalty program called Weldon Blue. Level 1 gets you free shipping for life. Once you reach level two by spending at least $200 total, Mack Weldon gives you 20% off of every order for the next year. And I can tell you from personal experience, I, I wear the Ace zip-up hoodie. It's the only full zip hoodie I even wear anymore because it's kind of that perfect thickness for California winter where, you know, it gets like 55 degrees and, well, EJ, I, I, you're probably rolling your eyes because 55 degrees is cold to me. But for me, like a... a, a I would say like a thinner, but also very well insulated full zip hoodie is exactly what I need. And the Mack Wilden full zip ace hoodie has just been fantastic for me. If you see anything in the Mack Wilden collection that you like over on MacWilden.com and you want to pick it up for yourself, you can get 20% off your first order at MacWilden.com slash bootleg and enter promo code bootleg. Plus, if you spend $75 or more, you will get a free silver mask. Again, that is MacWeldon.com slash bootleg, promo code bootleg for 20% off. 
Again, thank you to Mac Weldon for sponsoring this week's show. And with that, EJ, let's talk about the Jaguars because, as I mentioned, there's... Because, oh, let's. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a lot to go over here. Uh, you know, obviously, the, the hiring of, of Urban Meyer created a lot of waves. Um, the hiring of assistant head coach and slash linebackers coach Charlie Strong... Uh, didn't get as much reaction, but to me, that was really interesting because Charlie Strong is, I don't want to say he's controversial, but it seems like everybody has very, again, pardon my pun, strong opinions about Charlie Strong because even though he's had a lot of success in some places, the fact that like Texas really didn't work out for him, I think has kind of loomed over a lot of people, but I thought he was a great coach at Louisville. Uh, so I, I personally like the Charlie Strong hire. A lot of people did not for whatever reason. The uh, the Daryl Bevel hire also, I, I think, got criticized pretty heavily. But the fact that they also brought in Brian Schottenheimer specifically to coordinate the passing game, I thought that was great. So I think that kind of duo of ex-Seahawks coordinators can work pretty well. Uh, Joe Collin, I'm not super familiar with personally, but he was the defensive line coach for the Ravens for a lot of years, and they're one of the better defensive lines in the league, so I'm pretty optimistic about that. The one hire that I really didn't like was Chris Doyle, and that ended up only being like 24 hours, (laughs) which, uh, I mean, it's Urban Meyer, so I I guess I wasn't too surprised by it, and I'm happy that it kind of... uh, what's the word undid itself pretty quickly, but fizzled fizzled. Yeah. We'll use that word and be kind, but I definitely don't think that should have happened in the first place. Cause I mean, my God, can you just Google the man before you hire him? Uh, but overall th- there's been a lot of mixed reactions to this urban Meyer staff, some positive, some very negative for me personally. I'm, uh, I'm very on the fence. And not, and I don't mean that in a negative way. It's more so I just have no idea what to expect. Yeah, it's a very strange mix of a coaching staff. Uh, Urban Meyer, tremendous success at the college level. We don't probably need to go over that if you follow college football at all. You've definitely heard about Urban Meyer. You've definitely seen his teams and his accomplishments. Nothing to argue with there. Tons of success wherever he's gone. Also... Some controversy in most places where he's gone. You can also Google Urban Meyer and find things that have trailed him, you know, throughout his career. And winning cures almost everything, including those issues. He's been out of football for a little bit in terms of the coaching side. He's been an analyst, still high profile, and he's been lurking, right? This was the guy that was was hanging out, waiting for an opportunity that he thought was prime, and moving in and you know he made some sort of if you believe the media reports some lukewarm runs at a couple other jobs but this was the one and he saw it he said look I get the first pick overall which means I can take whichever quarterback I want which is important in his systems always has been I have a ton of cap space so I can go out and sign some free agents the roster is not bereft of talent we've got players on the roster i've got an owner who's going to support me i'm back in the warm weather this was the job that he decided to go all in for obviously sort of won that round of interviews ends up with the position and then starts assembling a staff which is an interesting mix of college coaches uh like charlie strong look 
38-year coaching career, well-traveled football coach, has had some very high-profile stops with mixed results. Uh, but I like Charlie Strong. I'm like you. I actually think he's a good football coach. Daryl Bevel is going to give some Seahawks fans nightmares. Um, Brian Schottenheimer, uh, who was sort of leading the Let Russ Cook movement before that got shut down, will have a chance to do a similar thing in Jacksonville. Let Trevor Cook, maybe, is going to be a slogan <laughs> for that. Uh, and, you know, they're going to. Urban Meyer has always let his quarterbacks, you know, run the show. And it's going to be very interesting to see how all that translates. Um, the Cullen thing is interesting. He's got some talent on that side of the ball, but a lot of that was um, sold off in the fire sale. The Jaguars used to have a dominant defensive line. They have some talent there, but they need to restock a little bit on that side of the ball. The offense uh, outside of the offensive line is a little bit closer. Obviously a great rookie running back performance. I think more receiving weapons than people really want to talk about or or were used last year that we're going to see some more of, uh, certainly with a guy presumably like Trevor Lawrence throwing the ball around for them. But I'm really interested uh, to see how the staff gels because they don't all speak the same language. They don't all come from the same system. They don't even really all come from the same level. So seeing how fast, how quickly that staff can gel and if they can gel well and deliver a unified message that the players are really going to resonate to, that's often a thing with college coaches coming to the NFL using the same sort of tactics that they used in college and college and the NFL are not the same. Uh, You can't do a lot of the stuff you do in college to a bunch of grown millionaires uh, and have them work. So it'll be interesting to see if Urban adapts. And the Chris Doyle thing was not a great start to that. It never should have happened in the first place. Um, Chris Doyle did some terrible things in Iowa, quite frankly. And, you know, they knew that. And somebody said this is the first time in Urban Meyer's probably whole coaching career somebody's told him he has he can't do something. Mm-hmm. Right? They said no to him. And I'm sure he thought, what are you saying to me? <laughs> like, I'm the head coach. I can do what I want. This is my MO. This is what I do. And then everybody said, no, no, Urban, this ain't the same. You can't do this. Like, we're not going to let you do this. And he went, oh, well, that's different. All right. I guess you're not hired, Chris. Uh, and moved on, which, you know, was a good thing. He could have he could have tried to go for the wall for Chris Doyle, which would have been a suicide move, but he could have tried it. He didn't. So there's some adjustment already happening. And I'm like you, I'm sort of, I'm questioning how well this staff meshes. Look, the team's set up incredibly well. We talked about the Chargers having a good roster. Yeah, they got a better roster than the Jaguars, but they don't have more assets. This roster could look very, very different after the draft and free agency, depending how hard they go in free agency. They could be loaded straight up to the gills with talent. And it's all about how quickly the system comes together between the coaches, between the offensive and defensive side, and then how quickly the players buy in. Two thoughts. One, I I looked it up while you were talking. I did not realize this about Charlie Strong. He was Urban's defensive coordinator when they were winning championships at Florida. I did not know that, but that that was the job that got him the Louisville head coaching job where he won, you know, back-to-back conference titles, was, you know, conference coach of the year. I think that was in the Teddy Bridgewater years um, when he took that Louisville job. Uh, Then Teddy got drafted in 2014, and then 2014, I think, is when he took the Texas job, which did not 
go well at all. But uh, interestingly enough, I, I didn't realize that, that he was uh, the, the co-defensive coordinator and then the full defensive coordinator for two of Urban's title runs uh, with the Gators. Uh, and then second point, uh, just touching one more time on the Chris Doyle thing. I almost wish they retained him because I really wish that I could have seen what would have happened if Doyle tried that bullshit on actual grown men with millions of dollars. You look at some of the comments that former Iowa players that are now in the NFL have gone public with about Doyle, not just recently, but like even go back to last and summer. many of them. Many of many them. Of it's, them. It's, it's not just yeah. a few, it's... A lot of former Hawkeyes. Jaleel Johnson, for instance, uh, you know, Vikings defensive tackle. At least I think he's a free agent now. Um, you know, he he put out a tweet that Chris Doyle would go around stepping on players' fingers as they would warm up before a lift. Like, the dude's an asshole. <laughs> Let's just be real about it. Yeah. And the thing is, in college, you can get away with being an asshole coach, which he did for a long time, for 20 years. Because, you know, these are 18, 19-year-old kids that are dependent on scholarships. Not the same thing in the NFL. You know, these are fathers with grown man strength and millions of dollars, and they're not going to put up with that shit. So I almost wish they would have kept him just because the first (laughs) time he tried anything like that, they would have put him through a wall, guaranteed, and I would have loved it. Yeah, I forgot to mention not to not to try and take shine off the Chris Doyle thing or or any more shine than he took off himself, but uh, the, I forgot to mention the most important thing about Charlie Strong. What's that? And we talked about the the Sean McVay aura in the NFL. If you get near Sean McVay, you're likely to get a head coaching job. Well, there's there's a job like that or or a set of jobs like that in college, <laughs> and it's going and doing anything for Nick Saban. Yep. Right. And what was Charlie Strong doing last year? Everybody's like, well, didn't he leave South Florida like a year? Yeah, he did. He was a defensive analyst for Alabama during their national championship run last year. So voila, (laughs) wash your hands of that. He is fresh and clean and ready to have success because Nick Saban is nothing if not a coach rehabber, um, including (laughs) the current coach of Texas. Strangely enough, Steve Sarkeesian, who, you know, had a bad run, ended up going to Nick Saban's, you know, halfway house for coaches, for college coaches, rehabbed his image, uh, again, led them to tremendous success at Alabama and got the Texas head coaching job and looks to be sort of off and running there. So uh, Charlie Strong's got that going for him. Let's see if it carries over to the pros. Why don't we get into the Falcons here? Uh, New head coach Arthur Smith. Fun fact is the richest Arthur in the building. He's his family's actually worth more money than Arthur Blank's family. Fun fact. His uh, what? You didn't know that? No. <laughs> Did it sound like I know that? Yeah. I'm like richer than Arthur Blank, the Home Depot founder. Yeah. Yikes. Well, you know what company Arthur Smith's dad founded? Uh, you're gonna tell me, and I'm gonna wilt. FedEx. Oh. That little outfit, the one with the trucks that I occasionally see like every other year. Yeah. Like, oh, wow. No, I had no idea. That's fascinating. Yeah. And, and you know, Arthur Smith wanting to be his own man, you know, carve out his own path to success. And he has. Um, 
you know, he's he's been a great offensive coach for a long time. Most recently, offensive coordinator of the Titans, where I think it was back to back years they were uh, among the top scoring offenses in the league, largely because he figured out something that even Matt Lafleur didn't when he was OC for the Titans, which is that Derrick Henry is pretty damn good and that you should give him a lot of carries. Kind of took Matt LaFleur like halfway through the season to figure that one out. Arthur Smith from week one straightforward when he took the job was like, yeah, I'm going to give that dude 20 touches a game and see what happens. And um, fast forward to 2020 and 2000 yards happened. So he's a, he's a really good offensive coach kind of in the similar mold to LaFleur and Shanahan and all those kind of guys where, you know, we're running outside zone, a lot of bootlegs, uh, you know, deep shots off play action, you know, slide route after slide route after slide route. Like it's it's very much a quarterback friendly system. So I think Matt Ryan's going to love it. Also, considering that Matt Ryan was in a similar system with the exact same language when Kyle Shanahan was there, like Arthur Smith isn't really going to have to teach him anything. It's all the same shit. So I think that offense is going to hit the ground running. I'm curious to see what Dave Ragone uh, is going to do. You know, he was most recently the uh, the passing game coordinator and quarterback coach for the Bears, which I, I don't necessarily put their offensive <laughs> stalling on him when you look at who was throwing the ball and who was blocking and all that kind of stuff. Like, wasn't exactly great talent. <laughs> uh, but I am curious to see how he fits into the picture in terms of play calling and, you know, game planning and all that kind of stuff. I don't think we've really gotten any clear answers on, on who's going to be doing what yet. Uh, and then defensive coordinator is going to be the great, the legendary Dean Pease coming out of retirement. Um, also from the Titans, Arthur Smith, you know, worked on that same staff with him under Mike Vrabel. Uh, he retired before last season and apparently got really bored. So he came out of retirement for this year to be Arthur Smith's DC. Uh, really, really strong coaching staff, in my opinion, uh, at least particularly with with Smith and Pease. That's that's kind of all you need. I, again, I'm, I don't really have a handle on on Dave Ragone's role yet, but even if he's just there from a, a you know helping to game plan and all that kind of stuff, I, I think they're going to be fine. Yeah, Arthur Smith really was one of the coaches that on my other podcast we were talking about for uh, you know a wish list for the Bears had they moved on from Matt Nagy, which a lot of people thought they were going to do, and my partner um, Jeff Burkus was really. Arthur Smith was his guy. I could absolutely see where he's coming from. Great success. Uh, interesting to see him go to the Jaguars in terms of, yeah, the Shanahan system is going to roll right in there. Obviously have a ton of great wide receiving talent, um, even more so than where he came from in the Titans, where they had two really good wide receivers this year. They probably got four really good wide receivers on the Falcons. So that's going to be a luxury. But what do you think the odds are that the Falcons draft a running back this year? What's their pick? Uh, Todd. Well, they have Todd Gurley. It's not where, it's weather. Uh, Todd Gurley, Brian Hill from Wyoming. Quadri Olison from Pittsburgh, who I actually liked a little bit, and Ido Smith, who I like a lot from Southern Mississippi, but he's a guy that's 5'9", 195. You're going to use him in a certain capacity. I think he runs above that weight, but he's he's not your number one. So, uh, you know, coming from a system where, again, you had a running back who you were like, nope, I'm going to give that guy 15 to 20 carries, which is extremely rare in the modern NFL. Very few backs average over 15 carries. In fact, there's usually about two 
per year uh, that break that threshold anymore. Um, and he's got this, you know, assemblage of talent in Gurley Hill, Olison, and Smith. I bet they draft a running back somewhere. Dare I say Najee Harris top around two? Oh God. Yeah. No, I mean, there's a bunch this year that fit. If you want something and it's, it's, this is somewhat of a misnomer. I can't say for, for Smith in particular, but a lot of people, when a coach, uh, you know, say Brian Dable had left the bills and gone to a team without a quarterback. They're like, they're going to, he's going to draft, you know, a big, strong cannon arm quarterback, because that's what he had before where, you know, coaches are adaptable. They'll work with the talent. So I'm not saying that they're going to draft a tank of a running back and have him run over everybody for the Falcons, because that's what he did with the Titans. I don't think that's the case, but I think he values the contribution from the running back position. He likes having, a solid workhorse back there, whether or not it's at the level of Derrick Henry. And I don't really see that guy on the Falcons roster right now. So I'd say the the replacement's a little bit more likely there. But, oh, man, yeah, Najee Harris on the Falcons would be uh, a little bit scary, actually, because they've got I a mean, quarterback. It's, they've it's got a, literally a perfect fit. Yeah, they've got a great wide receiving core already. They've got a very serviceable tight end. And you add a probably the most talented overall running back in this class uh certainly one of the top two yeah that would be that would be really cool again we you know the early round running back discussion in terms of selection we don't have to have that one again we've had it a lot um dean pease 48 seasons of coaching and that's with a couple off right that's that's staggering 50 years worth of coaching experience in one guy Um, As far as Ragone goes, uh, it won't be all that different in Atlanta than it was in Chicago. And that's a lot of people asking, well, you know, hey, look, if presumably Arthur Smith is calling the plays, what does Dave Ragone do again? And there was a lot of that. He was the quarterback's coach up until last year when he got moved out of that role. They moved John DeFilippo into that role. And so they made Ragone the passing game coordinator. And there was always question, very similarly, hey, if Nagy's calling the plays, like, what is Dave Ragone doing? And nobody ever really had a good answer for that for really their offensive coordinator or their quarterbacks coach. So I'm not really sure about what he's done. He's got an interesting resume. I remember scouting him as a player, which is uh, one of those things that happens when you get old. (laughs) Uh, But um, I don't know what his role is going to be. And I don't really know what his contribution is going to be because as you said in Chicago, well, could have been masked, masked by who they had at the position. Um, or just the fact that Nagy's offense didn't really seem to take off um, until he gave the reins over to Bill Lazor. So I'm not sure what Ragone brings, uh, and I'm not sure we're going to know with him in his role with the Falcons because Smith is really most likely going to be running that show. I don't think he's relinquishing the play-calling duties because that's what got him the head coaching job, and that's not typically what those coaches do these days. Yeah, it's more and more common these days for offensive coordinators that when they get hired for head coaching jobs they they basically just they're still the offensive coordinator just with extra responsibilities on top of that that seems to kind of be what happens a lot where uh you know offensive coaches more so than defensive coaches they're like well you know i i got this far by calling plays so i'm going to keep calling plays I, i would not be shocked if that's also what happens with with arthur smith not saying that's a bad thing just kind of being realistic about it so i i'm curious to see yeah, what and it's happens. gonna 
And it's going to mask Ragone's role if that's the case. So we're still going to be questioning next year, like, well, what did Dave Ragone do? Um, but one note about this coaching staff that's kind of fun, a little bit farther down the coaching ranks, Justin Peel is the tight ends coach. Mm. And yes, that is the same Justin Peel that was the tight end out of Oregon, ended up playing for the Ravens, uh, dealt with a lot of injuries, but I always thought he was was quite a bit of fun as a player. thought he was pretty skilled, uh, a little bit yeah. ahead of his time at the sort of lighter uh, tight end role and uh, didn't know, as I don't know with a lot of players that transitioned directly into coaching, uh, that he had transitioned into coaching and he is going to be the tight ends coach for the Falcons and he's got some talented players there. So it's going to be fun to watch. Yeah, he was, uh, if I remember correctly, he was kind of like, um, how do I put this? Evan Ingram before Evan Ingram? Like not as fast. Yeah, he was the, he was the move tight end that was much more receiver than blocker before that was an en vogue thing. Yeah, so everybody called it a bug, not a feature, and now everybody <laughs> calls it a feature, not a bug. Uh, but no, if he hadn't had uh, a series of injuries, he was a fun player when he was healthy on the field. He was fun to watch, and I saw his name pop up on the staff, and I thought, well, that's that's notable well he he was uh he was the tight ends coach for philly for the last six years with with Ertz and goddard so i you know he's mm-hmm. he's turned yeah. out some good he's players. used to working yeah he's used to working with with quality talent and he's got more quality talent at that position in atlanta so i uh, thought it was a notable addition to the staff well ej why don't we get to houston bum 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 <laughs> so david Cully newest Texans head coach. Again, keep in mind everything that I say in this segment. I have nothing against David Cauley. I have nothing against Tim Kelly. I have nothing against Pep Hamilton, Lovey Smith, any of these guys. But let's be honest. Whether we're talking about Kelly at OC, Hamilton is quarterback coach, Lovey is DC, Cauley is head coach. These guys are going to be here max two years. They were brought in to get this organization through whatever dumpster fire is about to happen, assuming Deshaun gets traded, which all reports indicate that he wants to get the hell out of Dodge and there's nothing that's going to convince him otherwise. He would rather sit out the year than play another down for this team, and I believe it, especially when you hear about the stuff that's going on behind the scenes. Some has been public, some has not been public. It's really bad. Uh... And I don't blame him for not wanting to play another down for this team. I think eventually he will be traded. I think somebody's going to just come up with an offer and blow him away, whether it's San Francisco, whether it's Miami, whoever the hell it is. Somebody's going to trade for Deshaun, I think. Uh, And so when you look at this team that has no money, no picks, soon to be no quarterback, no hope for the future, these guys are brought in to guide a tank. Like, not an intentional tank, but a very un... What's the word? An inevitable disaster of a tank. This is not a good football team. It's about to get even worse. They don't have the resources to get better. It's going to suck. And suck really bad for whatever Texans fans are remaining on the ship. And there's not many of them. So, I don't think that these guys are going to be on the staff by 2023. I think this team is going to be completely gutted from the inside out. Again, I'm assuming Deshaun gets traded. If Deshaun doesn't get traded and somehow ends up playing for this team again, maybe I'll reverse course on this. But based on what we know right now, 
This team is going to be completely gutted over the next two years. They're going to strip all unnecessary salary. They're going to collect as many picks as humanly possible. They're going to pray to God that some great quarterback is coming down the pipe by 2023 that they can pick up high in the draft. Are they going to be as good as Deshaun? Almost guaranteed no, but that seems to be the course that this team is on. I do not believe that David Culley was brought in because he was the best candidate. I believe he was brought in because he's the only guy that would take the job because he knows it's going to be a two-year stop, and that's about it. Yeah, this is a this is not an inspiring staff. We had uh, we had some categories at the end of the show for hey, what's the best staff? What's the staff we're most excited about? And I was like trying to be kind and said biggest question mark. And and we have some questions about Urban Meyer staff and and how that's going to gel. It's not the same category. We're not even talking about the same neighborhood. Mm-hmm. We might not even be talking about the same country. Uh, <laughs> the Texans are somebody posted the other day oh it's cool to see that the nfl is now 31 teams in a weird cult (laughs) and i was like yep that's that's about right like that's that's the experience we're hearing being described in texans land right now is things are kind of off the rails so if you might think that every team in the league would zig the texans are gonna zag they're gonna do something that you just really can't explain with sort of logic or best practice behavior that those aren't really rules that apply right now to houston so they had to get somebody and i think pretty much everybody including eric b there was a very sort of famous like we're not going to interview him oh no no we're going to interview him because everybody said (laughs) we should interview him and we didn't and we're getting we're getting canned for it so we're gonna bring him in for an interview which was the most farcical thing ever and if i was eric b i probably would have said yeah thanks but no and a Um, couple days after that interview by the way christian fourier went on the radio christian fourier former Colorado mm-hmm. player in the same era as Eric Bieniemy. Um like somehow they know each other. They didn't overlap at Colorado, but I'm assuming, you know, Colorado alumni, they stay close. Somehow they overlap. But he went on the radio WEEI up in New England and said, "Look, from what I've heard from Eric's camp, he is not taking the Houston job no matter what they offer." He did the interview, but he's not taking the job. He wants no part of it. And as soon as that happened, I knew shit was going downhill. And then a few days after that uh, was when the uh, the Cully hire was announced. And the day after that was when Deshaun's trade request became public. Apparently it happened the, even like the week before that. Um, yeah, that Cully knew about it. Because I don't think there's any way that you bring on a head coach whether or not he knows he's a pinata and don't tell him about something like Deshaun Watson wants a trade because that's kind of important to your job. And Cully took it anyways. Again, he knows it's a chance to, you know, do what he can, but his chance of success is a, not really up to him because he is not shopping for the groceries and making the meal. He's probably only doing a quarter of that. He knows that, and he took it anyways. He's got his own reasons. It's going to give him a bunch of financial security. NFL coaching salaries are pretty darn good. They are also guaranteed, so it doesn't matter how long he coaches for the Texans. He's getting paid. This is his retirement package. (laughs) 
that's right. And I can't fault him for that. Lifetime football coach, and we're going to offer you, you know, generational wealth. We're going to offer you several million dollars a year to coach for some number of years. Uh, you know, yeah, you're, you're pretty much set after that. And if you know it's only going to be 24 months and you're out of there because they're just going to burn the place down around you. Fine. You know, good for him. I'm not going to hold it against him. I'm certainly not going to hold it against Lovey or Tim Kelly. Pep is interesting. Pep, I'm sure, had some other offers and ended up here. Uh, he does get, well, he presumably was going to get to work with Deshaun. Maybe that was the lure. Maybe they didn't tell him uh, because I wouldn't doubt that at all with the way things are going in, in Texans land right now. But, um, yeah, it's not a good look. It's a very questionable staff. Lovey hasn't been in the NFL for some time. He's been the head coach of Illinois. Illinois ran a lot of his concepts, uh, which, uh, again, worked okay in college. He didn't have a great record in Illinois, but they're not going to fly in the modern NFL. Defense has moved on from the classic Tampa 2, so we were having that discussion prior to the show. Is Lovey going to run Tampa 2? And you said, not with our personnel. And I said, no, but does, you know, is he going to stick with it? Like, that's that's the question, or is he going to try and adapt and, and maybe do a little bit of a, you know, Vic Fangio impression? And can he? Um, he's no spring chicken either, so... Uh, it's going to be really interesting to see if there is any meshing here or if it's all just threshing, if it's all just churn and destruction. Um, and I, you know, I wouldn't bet on anything because the stuff, you know, we're hearing out of Houston is, uh, bewildering, quite frankly, they're not, they're not operating as other teams, uh, in the NFL normally do. So I can't really make any predictions about it. I, I hope the best for those guys maybe they get a Cinderella season out of it, but I really doubt it. Oh, this, this entire franchise is, I mean, I, I hope one day there's a documentary made about it because it is flabbergasting. Like everything going on in that building is flabbergasting right now. Like it's, you know what it's going to be like? It's awe inspiring. (laughs) It's going to be like the behind the music special when the band starts to come apart. It's already apart. I mean, this is like. Uh, no, but you know what I'm talking about, right? They get to that point. If this was Fleetwood Mac, we'd have a Grammy winning album out next week. That's how bad it is. <laughs> oh, well played, Mr. Coleman. Well played. Uh, I think we should talk about kneecaps. And specifically how delicious and nutritious they are? Yes, very high calcium content. Now, let's move on to the Lions, talk about new head coach Dan Campbell, most recently the assistant head coach slash tight ends coach for the Saints, Uh, new offensive coordinator for the Lions, Anthony Lynn, most recently head coach of the Chargers, Uh, and the defensive coordinator, who I might be the most excited about on that staff, Aaron Glenn, secondary coach for the Saints most recently, a 15-year NFL player who I (coughs) cough, cough, scouted, ouch. Um, (laughs) Anyways, uh, but has a a very good track record as a defensive coach in the NFL and a lot of experience on this staff. How does this staff land with you outside of all the kneecap stuff, which was really, uh, we're talking about Dan Campbell's 
comments at his opening press conference as head coach of the Lions. He talked about uh, the mentality of his team and, and mentioned, uh, you can look it up, just go Google it. He talked about biting kneecaps, both on the way down and on the way back up. But we're not going to focus on that because that's more fluff than substance. How did this very well-tenured staff that's now in charge in Detroit land with you? I'm I'm very excited about the Aaron Glenn nod for DC because he's he's a really good secondary coach. Again, he played forever, um, so I'm very curious to see what he can do with Jeff Okuda, who, I mean, let's be honest, kind of started out a little ding, bit ding, rough. Ding. <laughs> started out a little yeah. bit rough as a rookie, but he's immensely talented, and I think if there's one guy that you can bring in and 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 say like, all right, Jeff, like this guy's gonna fix you. Uh, I think it's Aaron Glenn. I, th- I think he's he's really one of the best DB coaches in the whole country at any level. Um, and I'm I'm very excited about that. And also, uh, Amani Oruwariye, I think is gonna benefit from him as well. Also, another talented young corner they have. So uh, all of all of the young Lions DBs, I think, are gonna benefit from this. Anthony Lynn, I think he's a good offensive coach. Um, you know, he's had success in multiple places, uh, in, in terms of game planning, in terms of, I mean, he's a Greg Roman disciple, so I think he's, he gets very creative with the run game. The, the, the problem with him, with the Chargers was not in terms of like actually coaching offense. It was management of the clock. It was management of timeouts. It was, you know, having your shit together on special teams. Like, it was a very discombobulated operation. But offensively, like, in terms of the stuff that has nothing to do with managing a game, uh, I think Anthony Lynn's a pretty good coach. And he's had multiple different influences in terms of coaches he's worked under. I think Greg Roman is probably the one that I'm most fascinated by, in in particular, like, how Greg Roman designs a run game. I think Anthony Lynn, um, who's a former running back himself, I think can take a lot of influence from Greg Roman to design some really cool stuff for DeAndre Swift. Curious to see if he does that. But overall, like I, I'd like Anthony Lynn as a coach. I don't like him as a head coach, but as an OC, yeah, that's a pretty solid pick. Yeah, and Lions fans, I mean, being a team in the division that I follow, Lions fans are pretty damn excited about Dan Campbell. A lot of people jumped on the kneecap comments and said, oh boy, you know, meathead football coach. Dan Campbell's a lot more than that. He's got a history with the Lions. He's got a good coaching pedigree coming from the Saints. And he's more than just the kneecap comment. And most importantly right now, the wave he's riding with Detroit fans is he is the anti-Matt Patricia. Mm -hmm. Matt Patricia was dour and sour, came from that. I'm not telling you shit camp from New England, right? Started off extremely rough with the press uh, in his first year in Detroit. Warmed up a little bit. We got to see him at the Senior Bowl last year. Seemed like a fairly affable guy up close. Seemed like he had softened around the edges a little bit. But Detroit fans are really, they had to watch a bad football team and they had to have a sort of say-nothing head coach. And that just really didn't sit well with them. Obviously, the losing's no fun but on top of that, not having any personality. So the fact that Dan Campbell is the anti-Matt Patricia, that he's full of personality and vigor and, you know, excitement for what he's going to bring to the team, 
Detroit fans are generally pretty supportive of Dan Campbell right now. And I, you know, I think that's going to work for him. And there's, there's some things on both sides of the ball here. Look, they've got Jared Goff as their starter. Uh, they seem to be pretty excited about that as a Bears fan. I'm okay excited about that. Um, the, he's not most likely going to be throwing to Kenny Galladay. Kenny Galladay is going to move on in free agency. That makes me happy. Um, so it doesn't scare me very much. But Aaron Glenn, you know, you mentioned Jeff Akuda, but he's also got Romeo Aquara, who ended up with 10 sacks last year for the Lions, right? Five-year mm-hmm. player out of Notre Dame. Uh, you know, one of the quieter 10 sack seasons that we've seen in a while, there's, there's some pieces to work with. Now there's also a bunch of work to do rebuilding the rest of the talent on the defensive side of the ball. Cause Matt Patricia and his staff were drafting for their system and it never worked. They were able, they were never really able to sort of connect the cables and have their drafting match their system and show results on the field. They just kind of got worse and worse. So uh, he's not starting with a fully stocked cupboard. This is not, you know, the coaching staff walking into the LA Chargers and going, oh, damn, look at all these players we have on the defensive <laughs> side of the ball. There's still a lot of work to do on the entire roster, but specifically on the defensive side. But I think Aaron Glenn is going to get a lot out of guys like Jeff Akuda, and I'm really interested to see how he deploys guys like Romeo Aquara, who, uh, you know, Again, had a very successful season uh, for a very bad team, so a lot of fans don't know his name. And, I mean, there's there's some other players there that I think have been really good in the past that just, for whatever reason last year, either regressed or just didn't meet expectations. I mean, Trey Flowers, um, Deshaun Hand has had some success in the past, particularly uh, in 2018 and 2019. Like, he was he was pretty good rotational pass rusher for them um jamie collins i think was better in new england than he was in detroit like even though weirdly enough he played under matt patricia in new england and was better under patricia in new england makes you wonder like how much of that was belichick and flores (laughs) compared to patricia um but again jamie collins still really talented so i'm very curious to see how they use him uh I think Deron Harmon's going to be there next year. I don't know if he's a free agent or not. I can't remember. But, you know, he's had some some really, uh, particularly in New England, I, I think he's had some really good moments. Um, Tracy Walker's a safety I like. Like, there's, uh, I think Justin Coleman's still there, too, as their nickel. Like, there's, there's guys there. Uh, Desmond Trufant, too, is another one. Uh, like, there's, there's a lot of dudes on this team, and their defense should not have been as bad as it was. So again, I think defensively more than offensively, like they're walking into some talent there. The question is, can they get it to play up to their talent level? Um, I, I'm very curious to see how long it takes this team to turn around. A lot of that probably depends on who they get back in free agency. Like, you know, can they convince Kenny Galladay to stay? Easier said than done. Uh, you know, do they try to retain Marvin Jones? Actually, now that I think about it, their top four receivers are all free agents because Sanu and Amendola are free agents as well. Yeah, the only guy they've got left in the receiving core, and this is a sort of underappreciated fact, is Quintez Cephas, who is a rookie out of Wisconsin. Good player, but he literally has... It's just him. It's the Will Smith gif, right, of the empty (laughs) living room. It's like him walking into the wide receiver's room like, guys, where'd you go? Yeah. one of the players for a receiving option that's pretty interesting for them is Hunter Bryant. 
who was mm-hmm. the big, fast tight end out of Washington last year. I thought a little overrated in the draft, but they ended up getting him way down. What was he? I, I think he – did he go UDFA or did yeah, he, he was He was a UDFA. Really I think it was because of injuries. Yeah, it was. But, like, if he's had his year to rehab and he and Hawkinson playing in the same formations, like, again, Dan Campbell, a tight ends coach, <laughs> if anybody's going to say, hey, let's get your career started, kid, uh, that would be a pretty interesting way to start. But yeah, they're, you know, uh, if if you're betting on the Lions to draft wide receivers this year, bet the over. Yeah. <laughs> they're going to need some. Especially if they don't get Galladay back, which, I mean, if I'm Kenny Galladay uh, and I'm, I have... <laughs> I think there's almost zero chance that Kenny Galladay there's is a Lion. There's so many better situations for him to go to. Yeah, he's looking at the quarterback situation. He's looking at, you know, is this team ready to contend? And I I don't think anybody in their right mind right now is looking at the Lions, no matter how how shiny they think Dan Campbell is and saying, oh, yeah, this is a, you know, this is a championship caliber roster. It's just not. If I'm Kenny Galladay, people are going to offer me bags of cash to go places probably that have a quarterback and have a decent shot at getting to the playoffs with a shot to win some games, I'm going there. Like, I'm not I mean, hanging out for the Lions. J- just when you look at teams that have the most cap space going into free agency, I mean, the Jaguars got $77 million and they're going to get Trevor Lawrence. You know, I would definitely go to Jack. I mean, again, no income tax, so you kind of secure the bag. You get to play with a good quarterback. Um, the Colts have a ton of money. Kind of depends on if you believe in Carson Wentz, but even then, like, again, the cap space is not a problem for them. They have $68 million, at least before the Wentz deal. I don't know how much of that they're eating, but it's not that much. Uh, the Jets have $67 million, so if you're a big believer in Zach Wilson, I think that can work out as a really good pairing with Denzel Mims and Jamison Crowder. Um, that would be a hell of a thing. The Bengals got $38 million, so if he likes Joe Burrow, who's presumably yeah. going to be healthy for week one, uh, I mean – pair him up with T Higgins and you got the twin towers there and AJ Green's still there. Yeah. So really the triplets, uh, I mean, hell that would be a hell of yeah. a receiving core. Uh, the dolphins, uh, dolphins have a ton, ton of, money of money and they need an alpha. The Ravens need an alpha. You know, there, there's just so many people that need his skill set. We talked about it on this podcast over and over and over again this year. Kenny Galladay was the difference maker. He was that true alpha. When he was on the field, the Lions played very, very differently. Mm-hmm. And, you know, his best buddy, Matt Stafford, walks, and there's all these other situations. They all need an alpha, and he clearly fits that bill. Like, he is easily that number one wide receiver that can drive your offense. He's going to get blown away with the bag, low cap or not. Somebody's going to the bank, and they're going to grab him. I'm I'm looking at the uh, at the Jags depth chart because I think again just because they can outbid literally everybody. Okay, DJ Chark, Kenny Galladay. Yeah, but I I actually like their receiving core, so I'm I may not be the best one to take that argument because I, I think I don't hate it either. They have a lot of diversity. Yeah, I don't hate it either. But if you can go four deep, Kenny Galladay, DJ Chark, Lavishka Chenault, Colin Johnson, are you kidding me? No, it's very talented. I, I just think they might need to spend a bunch of that money in, in other places, and wide receiver is one of the places they're probably best stacked right now on their roster. So that would be the only reason I would think maybe they wouldn't. But it, yeah, if I'm Kenny Galladay and the Jaguars throw a bag at me and you get to say, hey, like you said, 
no income tracks, and I get to play with Trevor Lawrence, who looks like he's going to be pretty darn good. And I've got a great supporting cast. I'm, you know, I'm going to catch doubles because I'm the alpha, but all these other guys are able to take targets. That's a fun place to be. I, I mean, they hired Brian Schottenheimer for a reason. That's to throw the damn ball because <laughs> that's all Brian Schottenheimer oh, yeah. does. Uh, I, man, that would be a hell of a fit. It, it's like not necessary, as you said, but it would just be fun, like for entertainment's sake. I yeah, I, I love the Jets fit. You know, if they go out and I, I really don't think they're going to just set sail with Sam Darnold, I... I I just think there's so much new and so much hope that they are going to take. Again, you you hope that you're not picking that high ever again. So, you know, you're at number two. You stay put. You take the guy you want out of the next two or three quarterbacks, however you have him ranked. You bring him in and you go get him targets. And what better to say, hey, we got you Kenny Galladay. Denzel Mims is looking good. We got Jameson Crowder, who is well suited for that number three role. And then you've got, you know, your associated cast characters. You pick up a tight end, uh, you know, and off to the races. Like, you could really start building something pretty quickly there. You know, we've got a we've got an OC from an established passing attack. Like, you're going to get your shots here. It could be pretty compelling. Uh, why don't we go to kind of the three, I don't even want to call them awards, but just kind of our consensus <laughs> pick for best staff, staff we are most excited about, and staff with the biggest question mark. You and I, I think we're kind of on the same page for all three of these. Best staff, Jets. Yep. Staff we're most excited about, Chargers. Yep. Biggest question mark, which is really our way of saying like, oh my God, what the hell are they doing? Texans. Yeah, with an honorable mention to the Jags, but I think the Jags have so much, so much more going for them that, again, they're not even in the same neighborhood. It's got to be Texans for like, you know, WTF, like, oh, this can't end well. So (laughs) now Jets, Chargers, and Texans for those three categories. And then we wanted to talk about some folks that didn't get a seat. Who are the big names? Uh, We've mentioned most of them. Eric Biennemi, the OC for the Chiefs, uh, again, no chair at the end of the music. That is uh, highly frustrating to a lot of players and coaches who've worked with him and say very similar things about him that folks said about Robert Sala, right? Not just that he's a great, you know, schemer, strategist, play caller, that he is a leader of men and that people want to play for him. And that is a necessary quality in a head coach. And people, lots of players that have played, that currently play for him or have played for him in the past have come out and said, this is your guy. This is the guy you want leading your football team. He is that guy. He's built for this job. And he's been through a couple of cycles with a very high profile here and hasn't had a gig. And I hear things like, he doesn't interview well. And I'm like, I think he doesn't interview well is the NFL's version of, I'm just not sure you'd fit here when you go and apply for a job and they don't really have any like real feedback about your resume or your interview, but there's something that they don't like that they don't want to say. They just go, I don't think you'd fit here. That's the the NFL's version of, ah, he doesn't interview well. I can't believe that a guy like Eric Bieniemy doesn't interview well because if you listen to him in press conferences, which is basically an interview by the press, he owns the room. He's extremely, he's extremely impressive. Like, I just, I have so many doubts that a guy like that goes in the room 
and wilts under pressure and just steps on his tongue in front of you. Like, it's just not happening. Yeah. You know, you don't want him for another reason, but that ain't it. So Eric Bieniemy is sort of the most notable didn't get a seat. And then Brian Dable, we talked about, very high-profile season, has done amazing work with the Bills' offense and specifically with Josh Allen. And look, if you are a quarterback whisperer, in the modern NFL, you're getting some looks because it is the most important position in the NFL. It drives offenses. It wins games. And what he did with a guy that me and many other analysts said, uh, this is one of, if not the riskiest prospects we've seen in years. And what Josh Allen has accomplished, you know, through his own efforts, but obviously through the efforts of guys like uh, Brian Table is staggering it's historic nobody's ever made the progress that josh allen has made in that short of a time nobody he is he is one of one yeah and so brian dable not getting a shot especially with the Chargers, where a lot of people thought he was a fit but not getting a shot overall uh is a little surprising to me i would have loved to see him in jacksonville right him with trevor lawrence like and that roster and all that cap space like Hell yes. That'd be super fun. So a little surprising, but, uh, you know, honestly, a tremendous gift for both Kansas City and the Bills that they get to roll those guys back. There is no way that either one of those franchises thought, oh, yeah, you know, we'll have Eric in that seat next year. Oh, Brian will be back. Like, no, they didn't think that. They get that, and it's a a real gift. It's a boon to those fan bases. Um, But guys you will most likely see in in the, you know, coaching carousel next year. And the last one's the one you added, Todd Bowles, the D.C. for the Bucs. Why don't you talk about that for a minute? So I I think this kind of caught steam, you know, well after – the, the hiring cycle was over. It was like, man, like nobody really considered Todd Bowles at all. Like he, he was very low down on the list of, of buzz and interview requests and stuff like that. Uh, it kind of seemed like a lot of other coaches, even defensive coaches, uh, were getting looks before Todd Bowles. And maybe it was because people still remember what happened with the Jets, but let's be real, that wasn't all his fault. In fact, I'd say a lot of it was not his fault. But I also think that round two for him as head coach, and I do believe he will be a head coach again, will be more successful because of what he learned the first time around with the Jets. What we know is this dude can really call a defense. He's extremely adaptable. He molds his his game plans and the overall structure of his defense to the strengths of his personnel. Very flexible coach. Uh, players love him. I mean, they will fight to the death for this man. Nobody's ever said a bad word about Todd Bowles as a human being. I think he had some bad luck uh, as the Jets head coach, and I don't know if he was experienced enough to kind of deal with some of the the hands he was dealt there. Uh, Because let's be real, he was dealt some pretty bad hands. But I do think that, you know, after seeing his defense dominate the Chiefs, not just in the Super Bowl, but in the second half of the of their regular season matchup back in week 12 where they almost came back and beat him the first time. Like this is a head coach that knows how to adapt to a record-setting offense on the fly and completely shit all over them. He's a brilliant defensive mind. And I do not believe that he's going to be a DC for for more than one more season. 
I think after next year, he's going to get a job solely because a lot of the coaches were hired before the Super Bowl happened uh, and all the jobs were taken. If if the coach hiring cycle took place after the Super Bowl, he would have been one of the first guys taken, guaranteed, because of the job he did in the playoffs. And I think that's going to carry over to next year. He's going to be one of the, if not the hottest name on the market, probably all year long. And really the key question is, where is he going to go in 2022? Um, you know, you look at coaches on the hot seat right now. Uh, it's tough to really predict like, oh, who's going to get fired? Like, but I, I would not be surprised if, say, you know, Mike Zimmer decides to retire. He's an easy one to slide in and take over from day one in Minnesota. He can work with the same personnel. I mean, they run a lot of the same stuff, and it would be a perfect fit. I think he would he would be really, really good in Minnesota. Um, you know, if Nagy only lasts one more year, I think he'd be great in Chicago. Um, it's, it's tough to say if he really would want the Dallas job if McCarthy only lasts one more year. I don't know if Dallas is really his speed, but... I think they would at least give him a look like this. This guy is going to have interest and interest from a lot of teams. And I just I can't see him being a coordinator for more than one more year. I'll throw an interesting one out there. And I agree with everything you said about Todd Bowles. I think his second act is going to be greater than his first act. We know that he is a tremendous coach. The Super Bowl really cemented that you touched on one thing that I want to get into, which is I really think the NFL needs to revamp the coach hiring cycle because right now it's just not fair. And it doesn't give an equitable chance for guys like Todd Bowles with the rules they have in place. Uh, They tried. They tried to make the little window where you could get a snapshot interview with a coach earlier on. It's just not enough. They need to basically say, Look, when the season's over, we'll start the carousel. And and look, it's going to move just as fast as it ever does. And I know teams really value that extra time that they can get, sometimes you know up to three weeks uh, for that staff to get in place and really start to dig into the draft prep. But it's just not fair to coaches that are on very successful teams right now. Be enemy and Bowles or two of them. Dable joined that group this year. But I think... Todd Bowles, like you said, brilliant coach, learned a lot the first time. He's learned a lot under Arians as well. The things he's learned from Bruce Arians uh, in Tampa and how he built a staff and what he values and how much he empowers his coordinators and coaches to really take the reins there are all things that Bowles is going to take with him to his next stop. And I'm just going to float one out there as a sort of what if that would be really interesting. Hmm. So... Living in the Pacific Northwest, there's been a little foam. There's been a little churn about Russell Wilson's not happy. And some people have said, ah, it's a non-story because Russ isn't going anywhere. Well, Russ isn't going anywhere because of his dead cap charge, but that doesn't mean it's a non-story. It means this is bubbling up on purpose and it's being most likely bubbled up by Wilson. So why is he not happy? And you can see uh, some reasons potentially why he wouldn't be. But let's just say at the end of next season, becomes untenable. And Russ says, that's it. Not doing it anymore. You got to move me. At that point, he's going to be 34. Uh, his dead cap charge will be down to not <laughs> horrendous. It'll still be large. And Russell says, that's it. I'm out. Right? Mm-hmm. 
And Pete Carroll is, I believe, the oldest head coach. Second oldest head coach? No, Second he's, oldest head he's coach the oldest, the I think. Yeah. So Cornell, I think, was older. But, uh, you know, yeah, I think he's the oldest head coach, which a lot of people, he's a very vibrant guy, a lot of energy, always has had that, looks great, keeps himself in shape. But uh, he is the literally the oldest head coach in the NFL. And if Russell Wilson, who has been holding together the entire Seattle program, despite some you know, very questionable rosters for a long time says, that's it, bag it, I'm out. I could see Pete saying, uh-uh, I'm done. Mm-hmm. Right? I don't want to I don't want to go through a whole rebuild. I'm whatever, 70, whatever I am. Forget it. Um, I could equally see him saying, as Pete Carroll might, like, I'm invigorated. I'm, I want a challenge. Oh, let's do this. Uh, but I could also see him saying, hey, I've, I've had my run. It was very successful. I like it. I'm, I'm going to I'm going to step back now. And Bulls coming to the Seahawks would be pretty darn interesting. I don't think he'd be the leading candidate, but um, I think that would be really interesting with all the things we've said about Todd Bowles and what he's learned at the various stops and the coaching jobs and positions, people he's coached under. Um, yeah, I like the Minnesota slide in with Zimmer retiring because this is people have made the point that just with the roster construction and the salary cap with the Vikings, it's this year or else. Like, yeah. if they don't make a run this year, they're stripping it down, and I really don't think Zimmer's in for a strip down. I think he's he's absolutely going to walk if the Vikings don't succeed this year. Uh, maybe even if they do, right? Maybe even if they go on and have a good run in the playoffs, he goes, hey, that was, that was my thing. Um, but Bulls would be a very natural fit there. I'm just saying a wild card choice. If Russell Wilson shoots his way out of Seattle after next season – and Pete says, I don't want any part of that. Like, I, w- I would put Bulls in the conversation. I would put the enemy in the conversation as well. But uh, just a sort of outside dark horse candidate for where he might end up. Well, I'll tell you what, if, if Eric Bieniemy makes himself available for Seattle, Russ ain't going anywhere. Because <laughs> he'd be like, no, nah, I'm going I'm to yeah. work with that guy. Yeah. Well, that's the thing is I if Russ stays, I think Pete stays. It's like a handcuff in fantasy, right? I if Russell's here, well, Pete's gonna keep riding. If, him if Russ me. says him or me, they're gonna choose Russ. Yep. No, I get it. Mm, I'm not so sure about that. We can we can get into that on another podcast, but again, I don't think that dynamic is that clear. Uh mostly because of the ownership situation. Mm. But that's a uh, until the ownership situation gets settled. Like, if they had new owners and Russ said me or him, the new owners would go with the quarterback, I think, almost certainly. But um, the way the ownership situation is right now, I don't think that's a guarantee. I think that's more of a toss-up, especially with him being, you know, going on 34 and uh, tremendously expensive. Um, that might not be the thing. They might say, well, we'll, we'll ship you off. We'll take the assets, but we're going to. We're going to rebuild with uh, our coach-GM combination, which they've leaned very heavily on since Paul Allen's death. So, um, yeah, just just one of those things. Fascinating, but hope you guys all enjoyed this. Uh, it was something we said we were going to do. It was fun for us. It's a great way for us to sort of set our feet into the next league year and really start thinking about how these teams stack up, what they might do in the draft, what their needs are. It's just a fascinating start to our sort of off-season preview that'll happen after the draft. It really does start with coaching staffs or start at the top. Uh, so this was fun for us to do. Uh, certainly let us know in the comments on YouTubes and where you get your podcast, whether or not this was something you like, you want more of, you want less of, uh, because we're always, always evolving, always changing, trying to learn lessons from our coaching 
slash podcasting failures. So uh, let us know. But we were happy to do it, and you guys sounded like you wanted it. So uh, we will see you pretty soon. We're going to do our bootleg All-Pro edition next and then really move heavily into the draft season. Uh, we're already doing plenty of scouting, but that's what we've got going on. Brett, you said you've got an episode coming out. Is that your next one, or you got one you want to plug? I haven't really determined the order. I, I know I am going to do Jeremiah owusu Koromoa as one of my first two draft episodes. Um, I might do one on like the the folly of quarterback evaluation because the story about like going over twenty two between 09 and 2016 in the first round is like amazing to me. And and I know people bring up like, Oh, like Andrew luck worked out. Stafford luck and Newton are literally the only three first round quarterbacks that worked out in that entire period. So three out of 22. So I think I might do an episode on how hard it is to get quarterback right. And why the vast majority of them don't work out. That'd be a fun episode. A little bit painful emotionally, but it'd be fun. Uh, I'm, I'm definitely going to do Rashad Bateman. So again, I'm, I'm trying to work out the order that I'm doing these in, but all of those topics will be coming sooner rather than later. Oh yeah. And we should preview that we've got a fairly decent guest list building up for the bootleg football podcast. Many of those folks are going to drop in during draft season, uh, trying to grab people with different specialties. Uh, we mentioned several of them, uh, in this episode alone, but folks that focus on quarterback, folks that focus on offensive line play or wide receiver, or, you know, maybe they play defense or coach defense, uh, lots of folks, or maybe they're just a tremendous draft analyst. We've got a lot of folks lined up uh, over the next couple of months. We're starting to line up dates, uh, trying to get slotted into their calendars. So uh, keep your eyes peeled to social media for sure. Uh, we'll certainly be promoting the heck out of those things uh, once we land them and the ink is dry and, and they say that they're coming on and we've got a date for it. Uh, but should be a very fun run up to the draft. Uh, both Brett and I, you know, love the draft, just enjoy it personally, but getting to, to chop it up with other folks that do it as a, as a job or have even more experience than we do is, is always fun. So we've got a bunch of that queued up. So keep it tuned in and, uh, we will see you very soon. Later. Later.